Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Pratap Kanwilkar. Dr. Kanwilkar is a visiting professor at the University of Pittsburgh. He's responsible for the Coulter Program. He's also an executive in residence in the Office of Technology Management at the University of Pittsburgh. He has extensive experience in commercialization and development of medical devices and through the promotion of innovative and entrepreneurial enterprises. Dr. Ken Wilker, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you, Dr. Murphy. I appreciate being here. So I did a brief introduction on terms of your background, but perhaps you could elaborate a little bit on some very interesting responsibilities that you've had over the course of the recent years. Sure. I come to Pittsburgh after about 28 years in Utah. I'm a serial medical device entrepreneur, but my background is electrical engineering as an undergraduate. That was in India at the Indian Institute of Technology. And then I came to Utah in 1984, did my master's, PhD in bioengineering, and then also got my MBA at the University of Utah. I was a researcher in the artificial heart field at the University of Utah and was always inclined towards the entrepreneurship side of technology. And in about 92, I started the first of my six companies that I've started so far, and three of those are still operating and generating revenue. One of those is a public company now, and has spent the last 20-plus years doing medical device entrepreneurship in Salt Lake City, Utah. So some of the prior podcasts, we've had discussions with some of our guests about the time it takes from the gleam in a scientist or an engineer's eyes to the time something is commercially available. And it typically turns out to be a fairly long time span. What's typical in that regard, and how can somebody accelerate some of those time frames? That's a great point. In my particular experience, my principal product that I've co-invented and taken to uh, clinical trials at least has been a long-term implantable left ventricular assist device, which is a mechanical blood pump which is implanted inside the body to resolve some of the issues of late-stage congestive heart failure. And we had the idea in 1992, and it was only in 2006, about 14 years later, and about $35 million of investment later, that we were able to take that idea into clinical use. We did that in Europe first, and part of your question relates to the regulatory environment in Europe compared to the United States, to the FDA. That's why we went to Europe first, because it was a much easier pathway to get there. And we would not have survived as a company if we had not taken that strategy to get our first human experience outside the United States. Then we spent the next five years getting ready for U.S. trials, which we started in the United States in January of 2010 with this device. And so it is a long time, and by that time, we had spent on this project probably had been invested almost close to $100 million, and it was still not approved. You know, it was still under trial at that time. So it is a long path. It's a very expensive path, and in medical devices, life sciences, that somewhat comes with the territory, so to speak. Of course, this is an example of one of the most sophisticated medical devices out there, a long-term implantable 
part which has all kinds of technology embedded in it. It's got materials technology, it's got mechanical engineering technology, electrical engineering, software, the whole bit. So that's not typical. That's kind of an outlier on the far side, if you will. But still, there's no doubt that it takes, even if you have a fairly simple medical device, take, for example, the simplest one, which we also did, was an electrocautery blade. It's basically a flat piece of metal with a proprietary coating on it that people use for cutting and coagulation during general surgery. And it's as simple of a medical device you can get. It's, it's a flat piece of metal with a coating on it with a plastic sleeve. That's it. And it's a single-use disposable device. So that cost us probably a few million dollars and about three years to get to the market. So that's kind of the ranges of where medical devices stand from a couple of million dollars, probably in this day and age, about $5 million, a couple of years, two, three years to get to what the FDA calls a 510K approval, which is substantial equivalence to an existing device, to then something like an LVAD, an implantable LVAD, which is going to take you 25 years or so and about $150 million to get FDA approval. So for the many people who seek the availability of some of these emerging technologies, unfortunately they have to be a little more patient than they wish to be. And I understand that, but it's important I think everybody understand that as well. So you're responsible for the Coulter program, which is a new program at the University of Pittsburgh. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the Coulter Foundation before we get to the Pittsburgh program. Sure. The Coulter Foundation was founded by a person by the name of Wallace Coulter. He was the inventor of what is called the Coulter counter, which is used to count and get an estimate for how many blood cells there are in a real-time basis. For about 40 years, the Coulter company was a privately held corporation, and then he sold it to Beckman Instruments, and now the company is called Beckman Coulter for a significant amount of money, and he had the foresight to set aside this foundation to then advance medical technology even further. The Coulter Foundation used to fund, and they're still funding to some extent, individual projects that they invited proposals to be submitted for. And then about seven years ago, they started this program called the Translational Research Partners Program. They have funded uh, nine universities about seven years ago, and they have realized how successful that program has been when implemented well at these nine universities. So, for example, the results show that with about $50 million of investment that they have put into these nine programs, that has led to $400 million of additional business funding that has been attracted to the projects that have been funded. So the important distinction is these programs, they focused on what is called translational research versus, if you will, traditional academic research. And if I might take some time to elucidate the differences between the two, in traditional academic research, the success outcomes are amount of grants that are funded through agencies like the National Institutes of Health, the National Science Foundation, the Department of Defense, the number of graduate students and students that a particular investigator supervises, the number of publications they have in peer-reviewed journals. So those are the, typically the measures that are used for success 
in traditional research. In translational research, the success measures are completely different. The success measures are number of spin-off companies started, the amount of investment that these spin-off companies have received, the number of high-quality jobs that have been created by those companies, the number of licenses that have been done, and eventually the number of patients that have been served with this technology. So the outcome measures are completely different in translational research. And so the Coldo Foundation decided to do this unique experiment, really, about seven years ago, saying, you know, we are going to fund translational research within universities and set up programs within each university that we select to make this, if you will, somewhat of a cultural change, really, within a university setting. And so that's why I came to Pittsburgh, because I've worked with Pittsburgh extensively with Dr. Borowitz and others in bioengineering and McGowan as well for the last 12 years on my implantable blood pump. And I realized how much of a rich environment that Pittsburgh was in terms of the collaborative efforts that they do as a matter of course here between a clinician and a bioengineer. Atmosphere is really amazing in terms of how easily and without thought bioengineers and clinicians collaborate. And that's one of the things Coulter is looking for. So we went through a selection process, by we meaning the University of Pittsburgh, went through a selection process, a nationwide selection process for the next phase of Coulter programs that they wanted to fund at different universities. And Pittsburgh was selected, one of six schools so selected in this phase that is starting July 1st from a project's funding standpoint. So it's relative to the comments you just shared with us, it's important to note that while you need the fundamental research It's only through the translational research that you're focusing on that things ultimately get to the customer and the patients. Both parts are important, but without the two parts, you don't have anything except an advancement in science. You don't have an advancement in products or procedures that can be used to help patients. Absolutely. And the external environment is now such in terms of the budget crunch this nation is under the international level of competitiveness in the life sciences and medical device spaces, and the fact that early-stage venture capital really has moved away from funding early-stage companies. I mean, it used to be 20 years ago I could walk into a venture capitalist office in Silicon Valley, and if I had a great idea, I could walk out with at least a million to $3 million of funding. That was definitely possible. Not today. The venture capitalists have somewhat retreated from such early-stage funding. And so I see that incubators and accelerators, either outside the university or inside the university, like the Colto program, is necessary, and they're increasing in terms of what value they can bring to the table in terms of cooking or baking these technologies much further along within the university setting before they're ready to go into the business world, so to speak. Exactly. And the other thing that fascinates me about what I see here is that there's this incredible collaboration between the clinical teams and the scientific teams as well. You know, as as I look at it, in the old traditional model, a scientist or an engineer would develop some better procedure, some better technology, at which point they'd go to the clinician and say, I have this better idea, let's talk about trying it in a clinical setting at which point the clinician would appropriately say, well, have you considered X, have you considered Y? 
And if you would have done it this way rather than the way you did it, it'd be a lot easier to implement in a clinical setting. What's different here and, and perhaps at other locations as well, but certainly here is that the clinical team and the scientific teams work together. And so there are still all these questions, but they're sorted out and identified as the technology matures. And I think it makes a, a significant reduction in the time to get from the bench to the bedside, so to speak. And that's absolutely correct. I mean, the level of collaboration that I see here in Pittsburgh, and that's one of the reasons that attracted me to come here, is unprecedented in, in my experience at least. Right from the get-go, the clinical collaborators and the engineering people working together on the project. Now, how I see the Coulter program and initiatives like that adding to the mix, if you will, is that I would bring a business perspective to that team almost from the beginning. So if you will, I've had this concept for a long time that I call the innovation genome. And I see the innovation genome in life sciences being a clinician, an engineer, and a business person working together at the same time. And if you do it right and start the project off right and point it in the right direction, as you mentioned, both clinically with the input from the clinician and from a business standpoint with input from the business person, then I think the chances of success for that particular project to see the light of day translationally is much, much, much improved. And as we all know that uh, many times in the course to perfect product X, you wind up identifying product Y. Correct, correct. But again, it's this partnership between the clinicians and the scientists and engineers that optimizes the chances of that happening. Absolutely. I mean, as in life, the life of a medical device is never a straight line. I mean, when I look back and I think about the design and the concept that we had for our device, our LVAD, in 1992, when we had the idea, what we actually put in the clinical world is significantly different. We went through a lot of changes before we got there. And that's to be expected. I mean, that's one of my learnings, at least, from being in this business, is that the path is never linear. It's a nonlinear path. And sometimes in a startup company, you know, we had to take three steps back to be able to survive for a while and to be able to then move forward as the time arose. So perhaps we should talk about the Coulter program that's starting here in Pittsburgh. But before we do that, I think it's appropriate to mention that Coulter's support of activities at the University of Pittsburgh is not a new happening. There's been substantial support in the past. But in terms of looking forward, what's planned to happen with the new Coulter program? The reason, actually, the University of Pittsburgh was invited and was selected to even participate in applying for this program was the fact that several projects had been supported by Coulter. And the Coulter Foundation saw that the University of Pittsburgh has enough critical mass of investigators who are collaborators working together on projects that they felt that Pittsburgh would benefit from a program. So I'm kind of distinguishing between a program versus individual projects that were funded. So now we are going to install, if you will, a program within the university that funds individual projects. And if you will, self-governed, with some input, of course, and participation from the Colder Foundation, we have funded for five years of funding. And not only the Colder Foundation has funded this program, but the University of Pittsburgh has also kicked in significant matching funds. 
to be able to allow this program to happen here at the University of Pittsburgh. So I think it's a partnership uh, externally with the Coulter Foundation, and at the University of Pittsburgh, it's a partnership three ways internally between the Swanson School of Engineering, the School of Medicine, and the Office of Technology Management. Am I correct to assume that the principal distinction between a, a program and a series of projects is the coordination and the fact that you expect to see synergism and complementary activities between the various projects? Correct, correct. And I believe the Colder Foundation and I myself am looking for it to drive a little bit of institutional change as well and cultural change in terms of getting people, faculty, students to think translationally as well as traditionally on the research side. In brief summary, can you identify sort of the focus areas that will be addressed? You know, we don't have a few pet areas that we want in medicine, if you will, for us to go after. The First of all, the leaders of the program are Dr. Harvey Borowitz, the chairman of bioengineering, is the principal investigator of the program. The co-PIs are Dr. Steve Badlack from the School of Medicine, McGowan Institute, and Dr. Mark Melandro, who's the head of the Office of Technology Management, is the other co-PI, and I'm the Coulter Project Director of the program here at Pittsburgh. Now, we have set up a committee, uh, both internal and external stakeholders, who would be reviewing these proposals. So, for example, just a few days ago was the deadline to submit uh, one-page letters of intent. And I'm very pleased to say that we received 33 letters of intent to start funding potentially in July 1. So we will go through a review process in which we will then request some of these letters of intent submitters, let's say out of 33, I'm just picking some numbers to give an example, let's say we select 20 for further study, if you will. So then by the end of April, we would expect full proposals. Now full proposals is a five-pager. Uh, you know, it's not very extensive, but it will contain a lot of the commercialization and translational due diligence that we will do between January and April. And those proposals will be reviewed by this oversight committee. We will then invite, say, 10 of those proposals to come and present a business-style presentation to this oversight committee. And out of those 10, we'll probably fund five or six proposals for the following year. And we will continue that cycle for the next five years. So you're building this from the ground up. Correct. And the requirements to be considered for an application and support is that you have some technology that's mature enough that you can explore the commercialization of the clinical implementation of that technology. Absolutely, absolutely. The Colder program is set up to be, if you will, the last touch point that a medical device or a life science project should see within the university setting before it is ready to launch outside the university, either in the form of a startup company or in the form of a license to an existing company. Now, we have another program at the Swanson School called the Center for Medical Innovation that handles the earlier stage. So suppose a clinician has an idea, just an idea, has no clue how to make that into a reality. That program, which is led by Dr. Al Hirschman, Drs. Warp, Fiederspiel, and Redfern, that is set up to take those ideas and understand them better, 
if you will, and then match that person with the idea with the right engineering and technical people who might help them realize that idea into reality. And maybe, you know, they have some seed funding in which Coulter is going to participate a small amount, five, ten thousand dollars to convert those ideas into a prototype, for example. So get them started on the pathway. Maybe that prototype, then the early stage uh, research, if you will, and the development can lead to NIH funding, NSF funding, whatever. After that is done, I imagine that after two, three years of NIH, NSF funding with the patent application in place and the technology well-developed, as you said, then they would be culture-ready, so to speak. They would be ready to be eligible for culture funding and we would then provide that last little bit of funding that a project needs to see before a venture capitalist or angel investment fund is saying, okay, we want to do a startup company based on this technology. This looks great. So for Coulter-funded projects, do you welcome or seek commercial participation? Yes, we welcome that. Now, we don't directly fund commercial company projects, but what we want to see with the funding that we do provide the projects is either they become spin-off companies or they are licensed to an existing company. And in our due diligence, we would talk to those potential licensees. That's where we see the most likely translational pathway beforehand, before we fund the project, to make sure that that project is attractive to a potential licensor. Very interesting. So... Can you perhaps share a little insight in terms of how you select projects? We have set up this oversight committee to help us select these projects. And these members have extensive business and financial investing experience in the medical device and life sciences space. For example, one of them is a managing partner of a venture capital firm in the Bay Area, which has $1 billion under management and does active investment in the life sciences medical device. There are several local entrepreneurs who have been successful with leading and taking life science companies to a successful exit. There are angel investors that we have invited and are serving on our selection committee. So we have attended to collect a group of individuals who will help us as far as possible, make the right decision in terms of selecting the right projects. Now, nothing, of course, is guaranteed. Even venture capitalists have a hard time selecting right projects. They're very happy if they get a home run one out of ten times. But the Coulter program has shown that their main measure of success that they look at is follow-on funding, they call it, meaning how much business funding does the project get after it received Coulter funding. And they have been very successful in this regard. As I alluded to earlier, they've shown like an 8x return. And they've also shown for the projects, one out of two Coulter projects now that have been funded by Coulter in other places have been demonstrated to get some follow-on business funding after the one year of Coulter, if you will. It's a great program has shown great results. It has been recognized by President Obama and the White House in a couple of news releases as well. And, and so we look forward to doing it and implementing it here in Pittsburgh. So this is certainly very interesting. And uh, I know you have a, a website which we can post the uh, web address on the podcast website. But for our listeners, could you perhaps give us the URL here as well? Of course. The URL is www.engineering.pit.edu forward slash Coulter. 
And that would describe and outline some of the elements of what we are talking about in terms of the Coulter program and how we are implementing the here at the University of Pittsburgh. Very good. And for those interested, I encourage you to visit that website. So I, first of all, appreciate you taking the time to share with us this exciting new adventure. Considering the success of the teams here at the University of Pittsburgh and the success of the Colder program and other institutions to this point, I think the opportunities for advancing medical technology look very good from this particular endeavor. As we conclude this podcast, I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast series. And I'd like to remind our listeners we welcome suggestions. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Until we meet again in two weeks with another interesting interview, thank you to all our listeners. 